Hello and welcome to ClapperCast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Clapper, Editor-in-Chief Jack Luke Sharp, and today I'm happy to join by co-host Rory Marsh. Hi there. Our special guest, Paul Anderson, host of the Strangers in a Cinema podcast. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hello, thank you for having me. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the new Netflix releases, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga, and Wasp Network, Kevin Bacon's psychological horror, You Should Have Left, and Ben Zeitlin's underseen spin on the Peter Pan story, Wender. Let's begin with Eurovision, The Story of Fire Saga. Who wants to hear Eurovision song? One, two, three, four. When I feel your gentle touch and things are going our way, we wanna spend all day. In Iceland, childhood friends Lars and Sigrid dream of entering the infamous Eurovision Song Contest with their band, Fire Saga. Paul, what are your thoughts on the latest Will Ferrell comedy, Eurovision, The Story of Fire Saga? Well, I've got to get my thoughts on Will Ferrell out of the way first, because I'll be 100% honest with you guys. Like, I understand that Will Ferrell is a one-trick pony. I fully get that. And that he's been plumbing out the same one trick for many, many, many years now. However, I happen to be a massive fan of that trick. Um, I'm a, a, it, and literally, Will Ferrell could just be buying some shopping and make me laugh. I would just look at the man and laugh. So... With that proviso, like there's going to be some enjoyment I take from any Will Ferrell film, no matter how bad it is, uh, except Holmes and Watson. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, definitely except Holmes and Watson. So I was quite looking forward to this going into it. I'm not a huge fan of Eurovision Song Contest. I've never really, never really subscribed to it or ever really watched it. Um, but I quite like some of the people involved here. Um, I'm a big fan of Dan Stevens. I'm a big fan of Rachel McAdams. Um, and I thought this could be quite fun. Um, and I think for me, for the most part, it was quite entertaining. Um, again, it's difficult to say whether it was a good film. There are big stretches of this film, I will admit, where jokes don't necessarily land um, and bits of it are quite awkward in parts. However, when it does land, I thought the songs were highly entertaining. I really enjoyed that part of it. Um, I enjoyed Will, Will Ferrell's performance and I enjoyed Dan Stevens' supporting performance. Um, Jack, I don't get the impression you're such a big fan. <laughs> um, well, the impression, uh, I think, might be an understatement. Um, this, to me, comes out of like left field for Will Ferrell. I, I, obviously, this is reportedly a passion project that far reaches all the way back until uh, 2014, which I think his wife, who's uh, Swedish, if anybody doesn't know, um, she first uh, gave him the idea of being a rather large European occasion, which makes it all the more strange that American would take set a charge of this. To be honest, uh, there's, there's a lot to take away from here. I mean, there's some stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued at. There's some stuff that I'm, I find incredibly unfunny, and there's some stuff that's just downright ridiculous. But for a Will Ferrell film, past 2009 it sort of rings true um the first thing i, I just that should set anybody up for a slightly a bit of his hesitation is that it's directed by david dobkin who has got notable credits of the change up fred claus and the wedding crashes and reportedly that he's going to also do the sequel whenever that may uh, bless us all as audience members um the only noticeable thing in his filmography which i'm I think is a relatively decent attempt at creating a dramatic picture as the judge, which is basically just now regarded as a Robert Downey Jr. push for an Oscar, which didn't really uh, receive any any uh, notice by the Academy. Speaking of Will Ferrell, Paul, as you've said that you you know 
like most anything that he does, he makes you laugh. It's strange because he, he writes this with Andrew Steele. And um, out of those two names, the one that worries them, me the most isn't Ferrell at all. It's Steele, who is infamous at writing SNL and Funny or Die, which uh, Will Ferrell once owned, I believe. And now it's in the hands of Justin Bieber, which is a sort of explains that little rocky road. Um, this, to me, feels like a gargantuan three-minute SNL skit, similar to Night of the Roxburgh where it's a small, funny, five, ten-minute segment that's overblown to a to something that's... And I, I don't want to come across here, that, but it's 123 minutes long. So you, you're talking about 25, 27, 28 minutes shorter than a Star Wars feature. I mean, that it, for a comedy, regardless of how funny it is, it's just it's, it's too long, and I think it really struggles to keep the humour up. And I think trying to find out what's wrong with this picture for me is the biggest mystery of all because it, it's bits of everything that the length ruins the pacing the pacing ruins um character death the comedy comes out of nowhere it's it's shaky speaking of the, the filmmaking prowess by dobkin though i think that's also atrocious the lighting is horrific it looks like it's shot on multiple occasions during the day and edited in post to look like it's during the night which is an incredibly cheap alternate if surely if they if they've shot in Iceland and not on a soundstage, that's sort of forgivable. If not, incredibly cheap. It all looks like it's a film that's been crafted in post production. Will Ferrell is not the, not the same Ferrell uh, that he was um, ten years ago, as I, as I made uh, mentioned at the beginning. This is not a Step Brothers. This is not a, a Tadega Nights. This is so far between watching Will Ferrell at his comedic best. This is something that reminds me of Get Hard, not even remotely like the other guys, something that's a little bit different of his palette. It's just a completely different comedy that for me doesn't really work. Speaking of comedy, I think that the biggest tragedy here, and I don't think she's the problem, I think it's the screenplay and, and the genre of film. I think Rachel McAdams, which, as you mentioned earlier as well, Paul, who, who I am a massive fan of as well, I think as a dramatic actress, I think she's outstanding. But here, I think that she's misled by all the comedic um, sensibility. Her timing is off. The comedic um, bravado she's got is just drab. It, she's just hopelessly lost with the comedic nature. I mean, the, there's a scene where they talk about elves after after they have a horrific gig in um, on the docks, and they have like this conversation about elves. And looking back, like out of context, it sounds really funny, but the timing she, that she's got there just it, it just doesn't work. It just takes her out of the picture straight away. I mean, the the discussion about elves. I mean, it's a recurring theme that sort of works its way towards the end with a quite a funny little punch. But speaking of other cast members, I think Pierce Brosnan is wasted. He has like ze- he has like zero um, arc here, but he's in, it's implied there's like a, a ladies' man with like 1,900 kids on the island. And it's just all very like all over the place. I mean, I, I'm laughing now, but if I didn't laugh, I would cry. <laughs> the car- character arcs are uninteresting and they're not very engaging. I mean, Dan Stevens and uh, I don't want to butcher this, but um, Mil- Melissa Thani Mahout, not, um, they're not really portrayed as archetype villains, which are quite appreciated because during the film, it builds up to believe that these two are horrible people by the end. I mean, purely because of the Eurovision standards, they can't really create villains. And and I don't think they would allow them to have the the rights of the the namesake and uh, and to shoot in the the stadiums, et cetera. There's no sort of real villain, but I think that works for the film because it's not really about that. It's about the two characters. That being said, I don't think they're interesting at all. 
I've, I've got to mention though, there's like small details that I detest. The film mentions that Pierce Brosnan and the family don't have any money anymore. He's going to have to sell his ship. But then you see Will Ferrell with like designer gear on his character. And it was like, it just, it was like, it's one of those things where to an average audience member, I'm not, not to patronize anyone, it's just not a big thing. But for me, for me I was like, it's contradicting its own mythology. And it, I was like, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And then you've got like, the boat is still there a month after the fact. It was just, it's just all so strange. Like if, if it contradicts itself in the moment, I can get it, but if it's got absolutely no sort of weight all the way through. But for, for me, this is not the, not the Will Ferrell of old. It's quite a departure, to be honest. There are little small bits where I can reflect on and be like, yeah, not, this is not too bad. Um, but for the most part, I was, I'm sort of laughing more at the fact of like, on paper, this sounds like a really good opportunity. But the execution for me is, is nothing short of dire. Uh, I think I'm somewhere in the middle of you two. Uh, I thought it was just kind of lukewarm, okay. Uh, my main issue with it, just to kind of echo Jack's sentiments there is I didn't really find it very funny, which for a comedy obviously isn't exactly a great um, aspect. I thought Dan Stevens, actually someone who I was worried about appearing in the film, who as soon as I saw in the trailer, kind of let out a bit of a sigh. Because apart from when he was in um, Apostle with Gareth Evans, I hadn't really seen anything particularly exciting or interesting from him, but I thought he was hilarious here and it makes me want to see him in other comedy roles. And the fact that, as Jack said, he wasn't the all-out villain, he was kind of, this sounds really weird to say because McAdams and Farrell are signposters, the core of this, but he was kind of the heart of the narrative for me. His arc from like this sleazebag, arrogant guy to, you know, the same sleazebag, arrogant guy, but he learns a lesson that he can't have what he wants and he sees something blossoming in front of him and he chooses not to ruin it. I thought that was really heartfelt and sweet and I thought, oh, and, I, and now looking back, I, I see Eurovision Song Contest, the highlight of which is Dan Stephen and his arc, rather than the two people who are slapped on the poster and in all the marketing, which one is a good thing for Dan Stevens and you know how that character is written, but two is an awful thing considering that we follow Farrell and McAdams for the whole film. Um, I think there's some classic Farrell comedy in there. I think there's one scene where they're sitting on the dock saying how they want to get out of their kind of backwater town and then two humpback whales kind of simultaneously jump out and do a flip out of the ocean. I thought, yeah, that's a classic Will Ferrell moment there. And also just to recur back to the elves, I thought that kind of whole little thing was really funny. That was probably a highlight for me there. But apart from Stevens and the elves and the whales, I didn't laugh, I don't think, once. When they, you know, mess up their performances and Graham Norton's in the corner doing his funny little bit, which isn't funny. It's just something we've all seen before. The narrative is basically a heterosexual version of Blades of Glory, uh, which is something not only we've seen before, but we've seen Will Ferrell do before. And I just think it's a bizarre, well, no, it's not bizarre. It's completely generic comedy filmmaking. And I think it's the perfect film to be on Netflix during lockdown. I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's exactly what I thought it was going to be, uh, with a surprisingly effective ending in which I sympathised with the character who, for the majority of the time, is signposted as the antagonist. So that's my two pence worth on this film. 
the I can't really argue with any of that. I can't really jump in and sort of counter any of those any of those criticisms because they're all 100% valid. Like the film has so many problems and I don't disagree and there are long swathes where as I said when I when I started that I sit, that I sat there felt quite awkward for everyone involved. But I de- but the music, just the songs, I thought were an absolute joy. And ev- just as every time, just as I was getting bored and I thought I've had enough of this, there'd be another musical number that kind of dragged me back in. And I thought, yeah, I just and I completely agree. It should have been half an hour shorter. I've had this thought about comedy for years now, where for me, the perfect comedies generally are all the tight ninety minutes, and I've never understood why they tend to run sort of even sometimes even sort of an hour and fifty two hours. I feel for me sometimes is too long. So yeah, this is too long, but I don't know. I just, I had fun with it. I, I know what I was watching wasn't good. I entirely get that, but I kind of got, I kind of got caught up in the, the camp silliness of it and the ridiculousness of the whole thing. Like it's, but no, you are right. It's not a good film, but it is one, one that I enjoyed, but the music, that's, that's where I'm going to come back at you is the music. I will, I will have to sort of, um, uh, not to contradict myself, but just to add on, I'm actually quite a big fan of the, the music itself purely just as a musical entity, not as a part of the film. I think their rendition of Pharrell's um, Happy is a, is a quite a nice instance. Um, and I, I quite like their, their performances throughout, especially on the main stage, I think, when it's quite clear that Will Pharrell's doing his own singing, if it's not sort of auto-tuned to a certain degree, whereas Rachel, McAd- Rachel McAdams is singing is, is, is overdubbed by a, a Swedish singer. Those are the moments where I think, for the most part, sort of engage with the audience, but well to quite a successful degree um i just i just the more we talk about this the more i find myself like i'm laughing at it more than with it and i think that's that's probably what they're expecting and that's what this is crafted for and i'm just slowly finding myself talking to you paul and rora that i'm I'm finding like i'm I'm not enjoying it but i'm I'm not i don't want to say like i'm enjoying hearing it but i'm actually quite enjoying or reminiscing about whatever I found in the film, which is so bizarre to me because I, I, I can't imagine one place in that two hour running time where I was like, wow, this is, this is really good. I, I, I can't wait to talk about this um, later down the line. Like now I'm finding it more fun, which is like, it's so shocking to me. I do have to mention though, there is one thing which I find like just so utterly bizarre and so out of place is the, is the cameo of Demi Lovato. I can understand at the beginning why that would work as she's a the fresh new voice, powerful meaning of her songs she's she's destined to win it then a, a certain action happens which is is so out of the blue in the moment and it's played like for all, almost like a, a comedic sort of reflection and then maybe an hour and 40 minutes later it's like integral to the plot and it's sort of implied that and as what rory said about a certain character who's meant, meant to be the antagonist throughout the running time has caused something that is actually like so sinister it's unbelievable and Demi Lovato's character not to spoil things but resurfaces once again to imply that it's going to happen again and then it just cuts away with that character saying oh that person's tried and they failed and I was like wait what wait what and then then it comes out that this has happened and then this has happened and I'm like this was left this narrative was left so far out the blue I was quite shocked to like find out and I don't know if that's me because I just was so disinterested or because it was just a lazy scream, Ryan. To, to be honest, I don't, I don't know where Will Ferrell goes after this. I mean, for Netflix, it seems, it just seems like a very strange film to make because, like I said, like it, obviously it's a passion project for Will Ferrell. It's since 2014. It's, it's been six years um, to see the from, from its 
its creation um, throughout that, that legacy of time. But does this really work on like a, on a universal worldwide market? Is this primarily for European audiences? Like I can't imagine anyone in America watching this and be like, oh, that's funny because that happened in Eurovision. Like there's quite European centric in-house jokes here. Like pardon the term, but it's very inside baseball. And I'm just, I'm, I'm worried that most of that humour is not going to work on a worldwide audience. So it's going to relay purely on the comedic prowess of both uh, McAdams and Pharrell. And as I mentioned earlier, I think what you get with Pharrell, it's, or Pharrell, sorry, it's the same stuff where, like you said, Paul, you know, you, you get what you get. It's, I mean, it's not bad in that terms of like, if you sort of appreciate the fact that it's going to make you laugh and you like that comedy, it works. But if you're going to primarily base it on those two things, and especially what I said about Rachel McAdams' performance, it's going to be a very, very difficult comedic venture for a universal audience here. Um, we were talking, I can't remember if we talked about it on an episode or not, when we were reviewing, uh, this might have been in the demo episode, actually, when we were reviewing uh, The Wrong Missy, the David Spade Netflix comedy. But we were saying how Netflix is kind of the ideal home for subpar American comedy with big names. So you've got your kind of David Spades and now apparently your Will Ferrell's, you, you know, Rob Schneider, I'm sure will have something in the works at Netflix soon. But we were talking about how it feels like this platform that is just designed for easy, uh, not particularly well made, not particularly well thought out, just mindless, arguable comedies. So this might be a perfect addition to that catalogue. Just moving on from what you guys were saying, the length, we were talking about the King of Staten Island uh, a few episodes ago, and everyone was saying they complained about the length there because it was two, two hours, 15 minutes, I think. And I was kind of supporting it and saying how I could have sat there for another 45 minutes, to be honest. And this was just pretty arduous. This is where you have the distinction. There's not enough Dan Stevens in this to make it watchable for the two hours that it exists, let alone, you know, if they wanted to make it even longer. And as a comedy, yeah, it just fails to be consistently funny unlike something like Anchorman or even unferal related comedies that would be similar, like Dodgeball or something like that. Uh, I agree with Paul on the music. I think the music is actually surprisingly a strong standout of this film. Naturally, with a Eurovision film, you'd be disappointed if the music was anything but, I mean, enjoyable and impressive. But I did find that really entertaining. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, love for Yo Yo Ding Dong out there on the kind of forums and things. I think that's a pretty popular one. And the final song, so this is, this is why I'm so baffled by this film. I love the villain. The villain is the best part of it, even though he's just a run-of-the-mill, you know, averagely written villain, but he's played excellently. The music is great, which for a con... I even, like, there were moments in the score which I thought were actually pretty impressive. And, yeah, the ending, I have no shame in admitting, nearly brought me to tears, which for a film that for the vast majority I really didn't enjoy kind of baffles me. But that's due to the music and that's due to the kind of arc of the villain, which when I put that down on paper, sounds absolutely baffling for a Will Ferrell romantic comedy. Um, and my final point on this is just like Secret Life of Walter Mitty, we need more films set in Iceland. I think, yeah, more films set in Iceland for sure, 100%. And um, yeah, just the, the, going back to your, your point on the Netflix, Netflix thing, Rory, and there is, obviously, we don't want to labour on this because we've got a whole show to do, but I think the Netflix thing is just, it's almost like because there's, 
it kind of gives you an appreciation of what certain producers do because I think with Netflix you just get a big bag of money from Netflix and you get made you just get to make what you like um, and I think it goes it gives you certainly an appreciation for what more creative producers do when they kind of wrestle back some control and don't let the stars take over their own film basically um, and I just wanted to sort of throw that into the mix on the Netflix topic really um, any thoughts on that anyone or just to echo that, Paul, and from what Rory said, I think there's an interesting topic to be told here, because we've seen it now with the uh, Happy Madison productions, with Adam Sandler, your Chris Rocks, your David Spades, all of them now have jumped ship from cinematic releases at Sona, um, primarily VOD, to Netflix, with like The Wrong Misser, um, The Do-Over, Sandy Wexler, um, to, to name uh, but a few. Is that a great sign for Will Ferrell? to jump ship. I mean, his last entities you mentioned before, Paul, I mean, we don't want to talk about it much longer because bore us all to death talking about Holmes and Watson, but it's a film that came out by, by Sony. It was tried, well, they tried to throw it to Netflix might just a, a couple of days uh, before it was released uh, internationally to horrific reviews. And that might be an understatement. Is this a sign of the times, do you think, for a comedic giant like Will Ferrell? I think Ferrell's got to be very careful here purely through association with these pretty bog-standard to bad Happy Madison films. I was going through his back catalogue when I was reviewing uh, Eurovision for my own kind of memes, and Will Ferrell's last few films have been Downhill, Zeroville, Holmes and Watson, The House, Daddy's Home 2, and Zoolander 2, as well as Get Hard. As a back catalogue of films that is Adam Sandler level bad from when he was doing nothing but crap. This is kind of Jack and Jill territory we're in right here. And I think if Ferrell continues this kind of Netflix streak, obviously it's not a streak yet, but we don't want him to fall into that trap of being given complete control over his projects and just churning out deeply average unfunny comedies just because he can. I think he's a comedy legend in his own right, but he's got to be very careful with how he plays things in the future because at the moment he's walking on very dangerous ground, I would say. I've just got to quickly echo that and um, just just to put on your point, Rory, we spoke about this person before we, uh, we started um, shooting the podcast. I, I think it's worse than Adam Sandler's little streak. I think this Will Ferrell four or five, six last few films reminds me of the Nicolas Cage performances where there's a significant drop of form. And I think it could, obviously that's, that's a completely different tone of, of an actor that's more dramatic and that's someone who wants to sort of embellish the process of embodying characters, whereas comedies, comedies at a strange time now in, in this culture, I mean, We've seen comedians like Bill Burr and, you know, we've seen what's been thrown at like the likes of Joe Rogan and Jerry Seinfeld um, not performing at college campuses. I think comedy is just a very strange time now where to push the boat is not necessarily the most brightest, nor is it the best avenue for that construction at this moment in time. So I think playing it safe is the easiest aspect to do. And I think, not to not I don't want to drill into the Eurovision 
because um, like I said, <laughs> more, I'm, I'm even laughing now, I'm, the more that I reflect on the film, the more I'm actually quite like growing on it, which is your your fault, Paul, to be honest, because otherwise me and Rory would have been able to solidify that it, it's an absolute tragedy. But um, I just I just think that I can't, re- I can't, I'm not going to commend, commend him, that's probably the wrong word, but I understand why you'd want to sort of keep the boat moving at a momentum that's at a steady pace. And I think this is, it's just, it's an average entity. It doesn't really do anything for anyone else. And it's a nice little thing um, to create. I mean, like I said, there's no out, out like villain. There's, there's, there's nothing here that's in any way obstructive to, to enjoy or be entertained by. I mean, Holmes and Watson is a complete opposite to that. And I think, like you said, Rory, that there's going to be a time now in the next few years. I mean, we're starting a, a brand new decade. Um, and, and Will Ferrell's been around now since his SNL days, what, since 2000, 2001, 2, 3, and 4, with the likes of old school, the Todd Phillips venture, one of the early uh, Todd Phillips vehicles. It might be a time now where um, we have to scream reinvention. I mean, you look at Adam Sandler, like you said, you've, he's working with the Safety brothers, he's wearing Noah Baumbach, like he's working with some auteurs. And I think Will Ferrell's not really had that dramatic outlet which he ironically works with Adam McKay, who's done Vice and he's done um, and he's done the big short. So the options are open for him. It's just a very strange venture. I mean, it, it to, to me, it, it doesn't it doesn't like bother me that much. Like it's not it's not a dumpster fire that Holmes and Watson has. No one's gone out and paid this with the hard earned cash. So I, I sort of like I, I let it I let it go a little bit. But at the end of the day, I, I sort of just expect a little bit better from the crew here. I mean, you've got like I said, I, I made like a joke about David Dobkin earlier on, but he's made comedy. He's made successful comedies. I mean, The Wedding Crash is one of those things that, um, those cult classics which probably wouldn't play very well now, like I said about this, this culture. Um, and that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. You've just got to, you've got to ride the wave. Um, so Eurovision's life cycle is going to be very interesting. And I can, it can almost scream sequel to me as well, which makes me even more afraid. Will we be gifted a Eurovision uh, Song Contest 2 with uh, more Graham Norton and more... Uh, Dan Stevens, which now they're reporting to make a spin-off or something like that. So there's 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 a lot here to play with, which is might keep people up at night. I don't know. Um, but moving on from uh, Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga, let's move on next to Wasp Network. November 58, Bravo, Bravo to base. Cuban Coast Guard spotted at 2380 by 8177. Head north, northwest. Bravo, Bravo to base. Cuban Coast Guard spotted. Tenemos vuelta costa adelante, así que vamos a cambiar el rumbo. Sur sureste. A ver, a ver. Inspired by the book The Last Soldiers of the Cold War, Wasp Network, directed by French author Olivia Essayas, follows a band of Cuban defectors infiltrate anti-Castro terrorist groups at Miami in the early 1990s. Paul, you reviewed Wasp Network for Clapper. What are your thoughts? So Olivia Assayas is has made some of my favourite films over the past few years, so certainly in terms of um, Personal Shopper uh, with Kristen Stewart. I really, really took to that film. I thought it was a superb piece of work. 
um, very, very different to what we've got on offer here. I think Wasp Network is more akin to uh, the Carlos the Jackal series that he did a few years ago, the miniseries that is, uh, for the most part, really, really good um, and got a, a rare good performance out of um, Edgar Ramirez, who comes in for deservedly quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of criticism at times. So it re I mean, we've got so we've got here one of my favourite directors with just an incredible cast. We've got Penelope Cruz, Edgar Ramirez, Gael Garcia Bernal. Anna de Armas, Ragnar Mora from um, uh, Narcos, who was brilliant as um, weirdly Pablo Escobar when you talk about this film. Um, so yeah, it reunites one of my, yeah, the director I'm a huge fan of with, with an incredible cast and what on paper should be an absolutely, well, what is an absolutely fascinating um, subject matter. Um, coming to the film itself then, rather than my anticipation for it, I just this is the kind of film that it's it's so dense in its subject matter it's so dense in in the amount of characters you've got and it's so dense in it's got such a such a dense time of history there's so much for this film to look at that there is an immediate argument to think maybe this should have been a series which I think Jackie wanted to talk about afterwards so I'll leave that there but um yeah for the most part for me this this film worked it's I don't think it's a film that's suited to Netflix in the slightest I think it's a film that the moment you get slightly distracted or pick up your phone and look away for two minutes, I think you will completely lose track of what's going on here, which is why I think a lot of the criticism I've read about this film is that it can be confusing, it jumps around too much. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a similar argument for this as there was to uh, The Irishman, whereas most people I know that saw The Irishman in the cinema really, really liked it because they were glued to the screen for the whole time. Um, and a lot of people who saw The Irishman on Netflix didn't because they kind of watched it in two parts or drifted away. Um, and I think, and again, not, I'm not knocking anyone for doing that. I sat there, I sat there in front of Wasp Network. I was uninterrupted and I watched it from start to finish in one go. I didn't have a problem keeping keeping up with what was going on. And I thought for the most part, it was a very interesting, very well made because the size eye for detail is incredible. Um, it was made with the full uh, cooperation of the Cuban government as well, which is quite interesting. Um, I thought the eye for detail is incredible. I thought the period setting was great. It, I love those actors. I thought the cast was good. But there's something about this that just doesn't quite click as a dramatic film for me. Um, and I say not quite because I'm, I think, look, looking down Letterbox, I'm one of the more positive reviews, I think. I'm kind of an outlier on this one. Overall, I will say I like this, but I don't think it lands the dramatic ending, to be honest. And I think maybe a lot of that comes down to the fact that it is based on a real life story. So a real life story doesn't have like the, the kind of dramatic ending you'd expect from a thriller. I think there's a lot of build up here. And I think in terms of the, the way a thriller is normally structured, there's a lot of build up here. It demands your patience. And then the film kind of ends and you're just like, oh, well, if I'm made to pay attention to this much detail, where's my ending? And for me, the film kind of just, the film just petered out a little bit. So I liked it more than a lot of people like it. And maybe, maybe I'm biased because I like the director, but I certainly don't don't accept that it's boring and I don't accept that it's confusing what I do accept is you have to watch it and you have to watch it properly first of all I won't accept Edgar Ramirez slander whatsoever even in Point Break 2016 he's relatively decent to watch on screen so I won't stand for that whatsoever Paul we're getting to to Wasp Network uh, not to reiterate anything you've just said but I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly on your level here with most everything you've said I think I'm slightly more disappointed per se, and I'll get into specifics, but I, I agree with you. I think the, the biggest two co um, complaints people have is, well, obviously it being confusing to watch and it being boring. And I agree with you. I don't stand favor of those. This is a massive, like just to add a, um, a little bit of detail. I've actually visited Cuba. I went in 2012. Um, this small part of unknown history, 
to, to, to most of the world is huge there. They have got our murals, sorry, um, all of the airports, all over the city about these five uh, main conspirators, let's say, who are considered heroes in that country. So this is a tale that deserves some um, gravitas. So j just purely out of that, I agree with you, Paul. There's, there's no way this is, can be considered boring. This little topic is incredibly interesting. It's, it's espionage, it's it's entertaining, it's intriguing, it's enigmatic, it's mysterious. It can, it can, by virtue, it's all those things, but it's also incredibly underwhelming for me. I'm so disappointed with this venture by uh, Olivia Assayas. Um, coming off something like Carlos the Jackal that you mentioned as well, I, 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 it was the first thing I came to my mind when watching it, when reading it, watching the trailer. It's like, okay, we're going back into um, a genre that we went in before. It mixed results, but for, for the most part, I think... It put um, Assayas on the map, uh, map. it spe especially put uh, Ramirez on the map um, and for his career. Say what you will, Paul, but he's always someone for me who puts in a relatively decent performance um, for the most part. Um, but this lacks intrigue into itself and it lacks gravitas of its situation. I mean, the two biggest po um, points of interest for me and, and the best aspects of the film uh, Penelope Cruz and Edgar Ramirez's characters. Um, both those performances are, are quite strong, but they're the only performances in the film who have depth. And it's almost like an ensemble as well, before long. It, it's a film that takes center stage of a heartbreaking family issue with the first 10 minutes. There's like a form of like, oh, someone does an action where it's quite like, oh, wow, that, that's intriguing. And then it sort of uncovers itself to a bigger conspiracy picture, which is I mean, it doesn't do itself any justice because I don't think it digs deep enough to sort of dive and delve into big, big conversations about uh, communism and capitalism and, and Cuba and, and the US. Um, but this heartbreaking family takes centre stage and it feels far more engaging than anything else. But the film repeatedly cuts away to add more characters and then more characters and then more characters. Two names is Ana de Armas and uh, Wagner Mora, who's infamously played um, Pablo Escobar in, in Narcos. Um, their talents are, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to understate this, criminally wasted in their respective roles. An attribute that feels almost redundant because Cruz and Ramirez characters themselves have this exact same arc. So when I'm watching it, I'm, ultimately you're being told one arc, you're cutting away to another one that has having, having the exact same narrative issues, ex exact same themes and, and thematic weight so it just feels repetitive and it's it's like 20 15 minutes of a story that doesn't need to be said so i'm i was more angry at the fact that there's two massive heavyweights here and Wagner Mora looks almost unrecognizable now um i think he lost all of the pablo escobar weight through a vegan diet which i found really interesting so he was like it was just interesting to see him strut his stuff in a very different role but not given the material to really really showcase an audience. I mean, what, what happens to Ana de Armas is, is like, and I, and I say tri criminal is, is it probably an understatement, but she's simply used as a sexual object here. Like there's no character weight, there's no depth. She marries a man and I'm obviously, I'm not, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but she's used simply like a sexual object. Like there's, there's like a, a sex scene in it where she just strips off and it's like, that's all she's redundant to. So I was, very, I was very, very disappointed with that, especially for Messias, who uses sexuality and, and the female um, body, like a personal shopper with Christian shirt in sort of like a really beautiful, delicate way. But I think overall, as I mentioned before, the biggest problem here is the script, which is 
all over the place with and I, I it's just bizarre that we're saying this about Olivia Zayas that it has zero direction there's so much material but so little expanded upon and it's chopped up in what feels like sporadic episodes I felt and it's interesting we, we talk about the net, uh, the Netflix thing which I like you mentioned earlier I, I want to sort of get to in my last little point because I think it's very interesting but it does feel like certain episodes are stitched together like um Gail Garcia Bernal crops up in the second act but we've already been put on to these two couples that are going through very similar themes and then we have a third party that comes out of nowhere with no depth and then we're showcased a very small scene with him and his family which I believe is his girlfriend and then it cuts away and we never see her again and we don't understand the stakes of the situation because the film's so enigmatic about what it wants to say that I feel no engagement so I'm just left there going right another character so that's three then we have another four and five then we have another five and six. And then the film cuts back two years at one point, which I found bizarre to introduce him. So he's been there all along in the background. But we have to cut back two years, which is such a very strange decision to make. And I think that scene there dishelves the momentum and engagement. I think if anyone can get past that scene and that whole dishelvement, I think you'll. I don't think people will enjoy this, unfortunately. I think it's a film that is so entrusted with it, say it's, it's just a disservice to the material this this will be interesting here because i disagree with paul about the netflix argument this is most definitely suited to a tv show like an eight eight part netflix show original show but i think the reason why and it's quite an interesting reason that it's not is because of the subject matter about um south america the drug running in honduras and then you've got cuba as well um and the inclusion of uh, Wagner Mora, who played Pablo Escobar, I think it would blur into the narcos world. And I think that's a, it's, it, I think it's more of a, a decision purely on a monetary value rather than having it as a TV show because it blends two properties. So if you had like a TV show and WAS Network and you have narcos, I think for Netflix, probably too much to handle, especially for an audience member, presumably, just because there's so much narcos now. There's like four different versions of it, like a, and a fucking video game. I mean, we don't need that much so I can understand why they would be quite apprehensive. Um but it annoys me because I think even with complete control with Asayas and the cast list with Cruz and Ramirez and Amas and and, and and including Mora or not, because I don't think he has anything to do in the film regardless. So you could just cut him out and put another actor in. I mean as 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 nasty as that sounds, it's probably true. I think this would quite exceptionally work in the Narcos world maybe that would sort of undercut the actual political point of the film and, and its involvement with the Cuban government, like, like Paul mentioned. But I think this should have been taken a gamble and put into a series alone. That way, I think we would have got something out of this. But overall, Paul, I, I'm, I'm with you, I think. I, I'm, with, I'm with you, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm more slightly disappointed with this, where I think, like, like, like I said, I'm not going to mention it again, but I think this is a film that's not boring at all. It's just so muddled and there's so much material here. It's so dense. I can imagine that if you do walk away from it, and I don't know, not to speak of what you've said again, Paul, but I think if you walk away from this for five minutes and you come back, I do seriously think like you'd just be, you'd you'd be in shell shock. You wouldn't understand what's going on. And I didn't find myself at one point sort of, I don't think it's, I don't think it's convoluted. Well, is it? I'm not too sure. I followed it to a certain degree, but I was more, I was more disappointed with the fact that it was muddled more than it was convoluted because I think you can follow it. It's just that I think that interest will wane for a, a massive amount of audiences because for the most part, nothing really happens and that's more detriment to the filmmaking. 
I think, yeah, I, I don't disagree with a lot of that. And I think just, just to dive back in on the point of it being convoluted and, and certainly the, the time skips are definitely bizarre. I think, yeah, I think possi possibly this material would suit a series. Well, this material would definitely suit a, a miniseries for sure. Um, and I'm going to kind of contradict what I said now on directors having complete creative control. Because the other thing, I don't know, I feel like there might be a director's cut of this sitting somewhere on the shelf um, that Netflix have just deemed too long. If it wasn't a series, I, I imagine, I can only imagine it was pitched as a series with the amount going on here. And yeah, like there are certain characters that do seem wasted. You've got this incredibly, incredibly talented cast um, that are just kind of thrown in and then certain, certain guys are completely underdeveloped. And it just doesn't, it doesn't ring true with how good a director he has been in the past, um, that these, these would be mistakes. It just, it feels to me like, yeah, I would say, yeah, I, I would certainly sign up for, I'd, I'd put myself through a director's cut of this another half an hour longer. And I think maybe you could have ironed out some of the faults with the characters. And I think it just seems bizarre that a director of his talent would knowingly underwrite some of these characters and underuse some of these performers. It doesn't, it doesn't ring true for me that this is, that this is just a mistake. I feel that this has been, this has possibly been cut um, and would certainly benefit from a longer cut or a TV show um, for sure. This was one of my main things to go watch at Venice. I, I, I am very intrigued with the director's cut notion that you've just mentioned, because not only would I stay here for another hour, because I'm, this world to me is fascinating. It's a very undocumented world as well. The Cuban government, the regime, the, the communism, it's a very interesting thing to get into. There's just very small mentions of like the Soviet Union's inclusion of it. I mean, we take place mostly in the 90s, just for clarification. It's just a very strange world because most of the Cold Wars in the 60s or 70s, um, sometimes you get the 80s like Atomic Bond, but the 90s is such an enriching world for this because it's the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, Cuba's coming out of economic um, crisis with famine and stuff like that. So, excuse me, there must be an hour here missing, which then goes back to your point about Assayas not having creative control over this because if this is the same cut that showed at Venice, that then surely means that Netflix Netflix have nothing to do with this. That I think it was sold to Netflix, which then begs the question: Is that is Asayas really happy with this? Because we've mentioned Chaos the Jackal, and he cut that up into two pictures. So it's not out of the question to argue the fact that he's here to really talk about an experience overall. And if he, if so, it needs to be cut into two places, much like the Tarantino issue with Kill Bill and. Um, the issue with uh, Rizza's um, Man with the Iron Fists, there's always a question of clarification whether to cut down uh, your baby and hope for the best and split it up into two features or roll the dice and put it all into one. And I think what's the network, I mean, this is a horrible example to make, but it goes into the same thing of Rizza's the Man with the Iron Fists. Condense it all into one and hope for the best. And I think, unfortunately, here he's come out in the worst end of it. I'd like you said, Paul, I'd definitely be here for another hour because there's so much here that's underdeveloped. I mean, I don't know about you, but the, 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 I've spoken about the Anna de Armas thing pissed me off to no end because I was like, she is such a fascinating and, and she's on the rise as an actress. But that whole arc of her could have been deleted and we could have focused on Wagner Mora and that then heightens the whole contextual uh, narrative of the film because of his actions of what relates to the overall arc but I feel that Assayas includes her purely because of her name so it's just interesting to see as a director who is as clinical as he is as, as you've mentioned with Personal Shopper as well where nothing that in that film feels remotely full of waste it's very condensed it's tight um, it's enigmatic but it has a narrative there this is just 
I mean, it's just, it's, this is more, out of everything we've spoken about today, this is the, the film that's disappointed me the most. And we're going to, don't, don't get me wrong, we're going to talk about something in a minute that's going to be to no end horrific. But this is the most disappointing thing I've seen in so long because it's all the, all the pieces for the jigsaw are here. You've got a, an auteur director who's criminally underrated. You've got an outstanding cast. And you've got a world here that's so enriching, full of culture, full of interest and intrigue. And for the most part, it's just sort of wasted away. I mean, it'd be interesting if we get a director's cut. I mean, I don't know if you know, Paul, has, has the Sayers ever gone back into the edit room or not? Because that'll probably be a big eye-opener if, if we ever get as, more of this. Not as far as I'm aware, I don't think. Um, but no, I just want to kind of echo that. I know, um, I know Rory's got a question in a second, but I just wanted to kind of echo that, that, yeah, when I saw the trailer for this, I was just like, oh, my word. This could be like I was like I was 100% ready for like film of the year. I was all I was all over it. I couldn't be more excited to see it when I saw who was involved. And yeah, as much as I didn't dislike it, yes, when you look at the sum of its parts, when you look on paper, this should have been incredible. And as much as I thought it was decent, it's certainly nowhere near up there with the director's best work. And yes, on that basis, would rank as something of a little bit of a disappointment. I would agree with that. Uh, it's fascinating listening to you guys talk about it from the outside in because as Paul was just saying. On the surface, you've got this O'Toole director, Anna de Armas is in it. She's probably, of all the actors in it, she's the one who's at the top of her game right now. Um, but you were mentioning earlier how you don't think this could have been a series because people would get confused between this and Narcos and everything that's going on there. But I was just doing some research and Netflix released a film this year called Sergio, which stars Anna de Armas and Wagner Mora as well which I don't know if any of you guys have seen, but I just want to ask the question, do you think Netflix with Wasp Network have gone for the film route solely because it's uh, due to, you know, worry about confusion over these things? Or do you think uh, as a series, I don't know, it would have been better digested by like a mass public as opposed to, you know, a two and a quarter hour, I don't know if it's in a different language or not, um, kind of crime epic saga whatever this is i think the first misconception of this is that and, and paul alluded it to it in his previous point where the trailer perhaps m m slightly and no detriment to its fault because that's the whole point of its creation i don't think this is a crime epic i think if you go into that i think that's what i don't want to misconstrue what i said about netflix I, this is not a narcos like it's not a it's not a crime gangster story it's it's a it's almost like the antithesis of that. It's 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 a group of rebels who evade communist regime in Cuba, but then fight against people to highlight the worst aspects of Cuba. Like there's sort of um, it's very difficult to get into it because um, there's like I said, there's so much. It, but there's organisations in Miami that are terrorist groups to create uh, terror to Cuba. So they'll go to the beaches and they'll, they'll have a terrorist attack, which I didn't know was real, um, but, but it is. Um, and it's, it's not to kill anybody, it's to stop trade. So the, whole, the, the biggest reason why Cuba is still a power today is because of tourism. So these terrorist attacks go to hotels on the beaches. Uh, it scares all the tourists away and then it affects the economy of Cuba. It goes into collapse and then they can have another revolution. That's the whole point of what these uh, revolutionaries are doing in Miami. But the characters that we follow, some of them, not all of them, are against this, and some of them are, um, are for it. So it's like intertwined of the whole 
ideology of wanting to sort of change the world, but you have to unfortunately set it on fire uh, and then create life and, 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 and um, a world from its embers. So as a Netflix series, what you said, it's, it, it's not that it's like a, 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 an Escobar part two, but it just would work as sort of like that Netflix world of, of looking to sort of government control. Um, but maybe Narcos, the, the comparison is a little bit left field. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. I think it just works as a, as a TV series. That being said, um, this definitely, like I mentioned before, it's sporadic episodes, like that's its structure. So you'll have 25 minutes, 20 minutes or so with Penelope Cruz and Edgar Ramirez as characters. And they have a very like intriguing arc, purely of certain characters' actions. And then you have Anadamas and Ragnamora's characters. And they do interact, don't, don't get me wrong. So it just feels like you're watching one echo chamber, then go into another echo chamber, and then these intertwine, and then they go the separate ways again. So we, it just feels like it was meant to be a, a TV show. I think you could definitely make a four-part or even a three-part TV show here, purely focusing on these separate episodes, and then not like, an, like a, 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 a cinematic universe of sorts, but then you, if you had like Gail Barcia Bernal's character pop up in one episode, then the other, and then he had his third episode, I think that would work better as a structure because you'd be more intrigued to finish it. And at the end, you could find out everything that happens when uh, um, things start to get quite frightening for everybody. Um, but to go back to your original point, Rory, about it living in like a Netflix world and maybe, the, you know, you've you know to capitalize on, on some of the performances here and that's what i mentioned before about like this the story arcs here that don't elevate or heighten the material it's just there for the sake of it which sort of implies to me that that's a creative decision for that namesake i think um, netflix have maybe missed a massive boat on this i think it should have been a, a three-part episode series and i think maybe what an hour and a half each and what the, what the film pause what an hour and 50 minutes something like that so you, you've got two hours of extra footage, maybe three hours somewhere, maybe two, maybe two hour episodes each. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much is left on the cutting, uh, cutting room floor, but there's definitely something here that Netflix could have made and could have really, really expanded on this world. Yeah. So my main kind of question, really, I suppose, is would this have been better received if it was a series by mass audiences? Um, yeah, I think I think it would have been. In all honesty, I think it's. I thought, don't get me wrong. I think what is here is good, and I think because just because of how good a filmmaker he is, and I think it, like, I think it's easier to focus. It's easy to focus on the negatives of this because, yeah, it is it is not the most obviously structured film in places, and yeah, there are yeah there are you know there are certainly weaknesses to it, but his attention to detail shines through. The period setting really shines through, and I just yeah I think it's a missed opportunity. To be fair, Jack, anything to add? Or I think I would agree with you. Um completely not to like I, I, I do apologize if I didn't probably explain myself in Rory's previous point but I, I agree with you completely Paul when you've got Netflix ma making 13 reasons why part 19 it sort of screams the fact that they've got money to play with here and they've got material to play with and I, and I think it, this is one of the rare times I will say creating this as a, a feature film is more detriment to the material this definitely needs more exposure more life probably a few more characters and, and all I mean there's, there's a lot here to work with so yeah um, I agree with Paul completely. It's a, it just all in all, I'm sort of just so I'm just so disappointed with it. All I, I really expected more from this. As um as an audience member, someone who hasn't seen it, someone who purely views this film as you know a tile on my Netflix screen. If this popped up one day, you know, on the Netflix homepage, and it said season one, 
Wasp Network, starring Penelope Cruz, Edgar Ramirez, Ana de Armas. I think that's just an instant sell there. I think on a marketing standpoint, people are much more interested, especially Netflix subscribers, in long-form, bingeable, high-budget, high-profile TV shows. But I think as a film, it's just going to slip through their fingers. Yeah, I mean, it's, ne- it's just to highlight, it's never not interesting as well. Like, th- th- there's something that pops up every 10 minutes that is completely engaging. And you're right, like, it has everything going for it. I mean, purely on namesake alone, Pen- Penelope Cruz, Edgar Ramirez, Ana de Armas, there's huge people there that can that can create an audience and if it's like a four-part miniseries it doesn't have to be one of these things where you you don't have to like like the the first two narcos seasons work, work on their own and the other ones follow uh, the remnants of that with with narcos mexico as well you can have like a small miniseries that you don't ever have to touch again most definitely there's loads of material here for it it's just a shame that Nobody was, maybe that's, I, the thing is, I, I'm, trying to sort, I'm trying to sort of evaluate in my head of the reason why this is not a TV series. And that's why I don't think I'm answering your question quite correctly. Because I'm, because by all intents and purposes, right, it should be. Like you've just explained it completely to me. Like it has everything for it. It has, if, if I saw Penelope Cruz, Edgar Ramirez, and I, again, I'm going to reiterate, Ana de Armas and Wagner Mora, directed by Olivia Sayas, and it's, it's, it's an auteur's vision of a TV, TV series about, revolutionary Cubans in Miami in the 90s like it's an instant sell like that has everything for a film fan but also has everything for a TV fan and 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 people who just want to click on it for a binge so I'm just constantly questioning and slightly because I'm more I'm like I said I'm more underwhelmed I'm more angry I'm just I can't seem to find why this wasn't a TV show but maybe that's because Asayas doesn't want to do that maybe he was he feels like he didn't have creative control over Carlos the Jackal, but there was three episodes there, two two films. So it's just, it's a very, it's a very confusing little feature to be honest, because it's so interesting, and it's so engaging, but it just loses itself with its own own structure, which ironically would have been sorted out of a television show. Yeah, I think I pretty much agree with that. And I think going back to your point on, like, I think it's already lost. I think it's already lost to the Netflix algorithm. Algorithm. I think now, if you log into Netflix, I don't think it's even there, and it's been what a week two weeks it's been out i think at most and it's already disappeared off of lists so i yeah it's a such a bizarre choice it's just yeah and i think i would say i would still say watch it like by all means but i think the reason and I, i'm speaking for jack here and i hope i'm not speaking out of turn i think the reason the reason the disappointment is because it had so much potential because it had potential as i said earlier to be incredible like it really did with everything involved here and i think What's even more frustrating is, as a TV series, I think there's no doubt it would have been incredible, um, and that's kind of where that's where that's, that's my last words on it. Really, I think um, it's it's decent. It's not a bad film by a long stretch, but it could have been so much more. I'm only left more disappointed knowing that Netflix, in the space of a month or in a week, could have had The Five Bloods and this. And I think for a creative type or an audience, I think that is just especially what's going on now with COVID with cinema change i mean you've got like i don't want to go into it but we're going to talk about something next which i think is a, oh, i'm not even going to i'm not going to try and find a word to describe that film next but you've got like the force of nature with mel gibson i mean you've got some indie, independent work like baby teeth coming out but you've got this could have been a skyrocket and you know people are binging tiger king and stuff like that netflix if they would have just got their act together with this i think they would have had another surprise hit on the hands because it, it's just it's just interesting 
the whole month of June would have been, or the whole COVID, it'd just been Netflix platform would have just skyrocketed in popularity. But I, it's just, I'm, I'm off flabbergasted at all, to be honest. It's interesting that you mentioned there, Paul, getting lost in the algorithm, because that's what I think my whole point was with the Narcos connection. I think you implied it at the beginning as well. I think this whole film is doomed if it did and doomed if it didn't, which is so disappointing knowing that Olivia Sayas has sort of just folded on a property that would have been not an instant cash grab, but hugely successful. I mean, it begs the question that then, in an alternate universe, we were all normal. Would this have done very well at a cinema? Just... No, I don't think at all. Even with a pull, I think it's. I think the film itself is just so overly dense. I think it just puts off. It'll put off a large amount of, of viewers. Netflix is probably its best bed, but even then, I think it just gets lost, doesn't it, in the algorithm? But speaking of uh, getting lost, we move on next to the first non-Netflix release we'll be covering this week, which is Kevin Bacon's vehicle "You Should Have Left" by Blumhouse, that reunites the star with David Kep after 21 years. Sixteen, seven, twelve, zero. Honey, honey, honey. You talk fast. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Okay, one. you got me. Yay! Hang on tight, honey. Okay. Don't let go. Okay. Twenty-six feet. Hold on tight. Okay. Strange events plague a couple and their young daughter when they rent a secluded countryside house that has a dark past. Did you should have left keep you up at night, Rora? Um, I, I'm, I almost don't want to talk about this, to be honest. It's just... So David Kep is an interesting figure. We were talking earlier about how he is the ninth highest grossing screenwriter in American film history. This is the guy who wrote Jurassic Park, but he also wrote Indiana Jones and the Temple and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with um, an inconsistent chap here. You Should Have Left is something that feels like it was built for video on demand. There's definitely a type of film. And I think if you even, you don't even need to see the film. If you see the poster for You Should Have Left, you know exactly what type of film it is. It is a factory produced minuscule budget minuscule effort horror film horror in inverted commas this is one of the least scariest things i've seen in years um with a kind of big name star on the front maybe two in this case you've got kevin bacon and amanda seafried in this ask me why i don't know why they're in it some agents are definitely getting fired hopefully after this and it's about a guy kevin bacon is a guy we know that he is a male man in his late 50s, arguably early 60s. And that's all I know about Kevin Bacon in this film. Amanda Seyfried is an actress. Uh, they go to Wales for a getaway. I don't know why they do. I don't know why they pick to get away to Wales in the ugliest house in film history. I mean, I'd rather live in the house from it than this house. It's just, yeah, horrible. And something that made me laugh, I wrote in my Letterbox review is, Amanda Seyfried walks into the ugliest house I've ever seen in my life and says, oh, I love it. No phone signal, though, which is pretty much a setup for a haunted house film. Um, and the film itself, this is, this reminds, in, in a way, you can kind of compare this to Eurovision. This is a genre film. Eurovision was a comedy that isn't funny. You should have left as a horror film that isn't scary. I mean, they're two parts of the same coin here. And I don't really know where to start with this, just that 
yeah, they should have left the set on day one because this is pointless. Jack, I'll, I'll let you say your piece and then I'll try and bounce off you because I'm struggling to come up with where to start here. I'm going to be in the same boat as you, to be honest, Rory. Um, let me just start with this. The scariest part of You Should Have Left is the energy bill that the, the house is going to have to pay for how many fucking lights are left on. We spoke about this before, Rory, and I don't want to cut you up about this, but this is true. Like, the, the, there's, a sca- there's, a, <laughs> there's a scare in this film of when a light is on and then it's turned off and then Kevin Bacon leaves the room and then the light mysteriously turns back on. Now, before anyone shudders and is scared to death, that happens quite a few times, so don't worry. If it gets you the first time, it won't get you the second time. But this this film is... I mean, I, I really want to sort of be professional about this, but this film is a sack of shit. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really trying to be professional about this, but I can't, like... David Kep, like you mentioned before, writing credits, Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible. And then you look at his directing credits, which his last film is Mordecai with Johnny Depp. Now... If that doesn't set a precedent, nothing else will. But then again, you know, we've seen crazier stuff. We've seen people make horrific cinema and then they've come back a few years later and they get back into more of a stride, more comfortable. No, 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 people. No, 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 no. This is the same man who made Secret Window. Now, if anyone's seen The Secret Window, which stars Johnny Depp, you've watched You Should Have Left. It is the exact same film, the exact same twist. The narrative is all the same about a, a mysterious figure. And then the twist comes a mile off and it's predictable, it's boring. Like I said, the, 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 the scariest part of this is the energy bill, that whoever owns that horrific house in the middle of Wales, which you mentioned before, Rora, the house is, it, the whole aesthetic, the whole iconography, it's not frightening, it's just a large house that has this sort of art deco vibe that has about 95,000 rooms and all of it looks the same, it's all bland, the colour palette is just grey which if that's meant to sort of infer any sort of fear into that, it's that home designs are drastically needed and called upon. I mean, the, the setting of a house in Wales, it's, it's so direct in the screenplay. It feels so pointless and uninteresting. Like, there's no reason why it's in Wales. I mean, the film starts off in LA, which I don't know if you noticed this, Rory, but when Kevin Bacon's character goes to the film set, the, the guy has a Fast and Furious 7 hat on. <laughs> I was just, I was, I couldn't understand the whole scene regardless because I was like, well, this is just awkward because his wife, played by Amanda Seyfried, I believe it's his wife because there's about a 30-year gap between them, a six-year-old man and a, a 30-year-old woman. Like, there's mentions of him being a father, which was like, is that a fact? I don't, I don't know. Like, they are a couple, are they not? I'm not too sure they're married, I don't know. She's acting through a sex scene. She's an actress and he's an investment banker. It doesn't know, you, you won't know because it tells you that in the synopsis, but it's not relevant. I mean, the whole part of her, her being an actress is only relevant because he has issues of believing her that, he, that they're in love and stuff like that, which is all like toxic masculinity, which is um, an interesting aspect, but it's completely um, underwritten and it's just tedious to watch. But like, he has a Fast and Furious 7 logo hat on. I was like, is that purely because it's a universal film? completely pulled me out of the film for a small little instance, but I, I do digress because that is getting into things that um, is really annoying me. But um, the cinematography, as mentioned before, about the aesthetic of the, the house, it's just tonally flat. The, the choice of shooting at 185.1 is a disaster because you don't feel the claustrophobia of the house, which it's meant to intend to do. You know, you, you have the full-blown uh, picture. You can't escape the black bars are you, there to usually help you make it more cinematic. So this is here to create that atmosphere and tension and it just 
wholeheartedly falls flat. It has the most bane and conventionally generic finale in horror imaginable. I did come away with this and I did see this on Twitter as well, which I think is a great, a great choice. Kevin Bacon has a certain scene in this film that would make a really, well, it's, it's sort of like a little snippet of him being a really good Freddy Krueger. And that's the one thing I turned away from this and be like, yeah, that'd be interesting, another life. It's never going to happen because whatever happens with, uh, with, with Kevin Bacon, I think horror is not his forte. The audience repeatedly throughout feels no way, no compassion or interest remotely for the characters present. I mean, there's sort of like a, a third act reveal and second act sort of where one of the characters has, has had like this incident a few years beforehand and one character tells a five-year-old girl in detail it and it's like quite a harrowing thing and then we see flashbacks to it and then in the finale it's revealed this more information but it's like such a left field screenwriting thing to just throw it on the audience. I mean, there's like a jump scare in this where this young daughter climbs up a tree Amanda Seyfried is like, please, please be careful. And you just know she's going to slip because the camera never pulls away. And then she does slip and she catches her, but it's played as a jump scare. The baseline of what you're going to have here, that is the height of horror. It's just this, I just, every, everything filmmaking wise is just so poor and bland. I mean, Universal have released this purely in the US. So whatever happens over there, this was never going to make any money. So I, I can only imagine that VOD's done them a, a good service. As I've mentioned before, horror conventions that derive of lights on, lights off. And there's a scene towards the beginning, which is actually the opening, should I say, where there's a three-time recurring dream sequence. A character wakes up, they're in a dream. Another character wakes up, they're in a dream. Another character wakes up, and they're in a nightmare. And it's like, I've seen that before. And I was like, why have I seen that before? And I was like, the Wicker Man. I was like, Nicolas Cage. And then you find out that Nicolas Cage was meant to play this role. And I was like, yeah, that's more Seward. I can understand now that this was never meant to be anything. And then before long, it just, it just, it, it ends. There's a horrible scene with a, with like a Welsh shopkeeper where like, it's quite funny, but it's not meant to be funny. And then there's quite a few instances of humor here where it's like, well, that comes quite slightly outfield. And then you, you sort of like double guessing yourself where, am I meant to be scared by this or am I meant to laugh at this? Like when an audience has to guess themselves, I mean, it's, 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 that's a bad precedent to make. Um, then there's a character by a Land Rover, which is just like awkwardly stood by the car and you never see her again. She's like, have you met Stickler? And the guy's like, what? And we've got no idea as an audience. It's like this, if you talk about what's network about this half an hour missing, there must be at least an hour here. That's like just, character development, depth, intrigue, tense, attention, that's just cut as fat away. And then you have a, a brick and mortar entity that just doesn't do anything. I mean, I just, the comparison to Secret Window blew my mind, but after the fact, I'm just like disgusted <laughs> that this was made. And then not to go on, I'll, I'll, I'll push this off because I feel like I may have an aneurysm, but you find out that, if you look at, sorry, Blumhouse's um, releases this year, and this is this is under J Jason Blumhouse's Blumhouse horror label. I mean, you, it's dire. The Invisible Man's the only positive. But I mean, I, th I think that's far beyond expectations ever guessed. I think it was meant to be a, a decent release, and we've mentioned it beforehand. But I don't think anyone expected it to be a hum huge uh, blockbuster. But you've got Fantasy Island that was horrific. Um, I recommend nobody watching that. You've got The Hunt that was a disaster on release. It went straight to VOD. I mean, Blumhouse have got um, Halloween Kills in October. This is like the worst run-up to a massive release 
that Universal and Blumhouse have, have, have made in a long time. I can't imagine a run-up that's been this bland and this poor for such a long time. I'm just, I'm, I'm so scared for the David Gordon Green, Danny McBride Halloween sequel after this and after this year for Blumhouse. I, I'm, I'm seriously questioning everything. <laughs> well, this is a psychological horror. It sounds like you've had a psychological breakdown of your own there, uh, watching this film. I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, there is some comedy in here, which I found very kind of awkward. And the idea of the comedy, I think, is that it's slow and awkward. Like this scene with the Welsh shopkeeper, where he orders like five things at once. And for some reason, the shopkeeper goes to the larder, grabs one thing, brings it back. And then Kevin Bacon's like, oh, are you going to get the bread now? And then he does. And it's all very depressing. It's just baffling how anyone thought this was a good product. It's not remotely engaging or successful at anything it tries to do. Something that I found really interesting here, and I've seen a lot, of, I'm a big fan of Kevin Bacon. I think he's done some really good things with his career in the past. His performance here is atrocious. There's one scene where he kind of imitates trauma or uh, sadness when he has a dream sequence. And in one of these, I, I can say it because it's not a spoiler. In one of his dream sequences, his daughter dies and he's kind of cradling her in his arms and mourning, but it's, it is Nicolas Cage-esque in the fact that it's over the top, yet somehow just completely undercooked and unconvincing. As you were talking about, this house is probably the worst haunted house in film history. It's kind of this art deco modern, I mean, the, my main issue with it is I was thinking that's a nice Welsh countryside village, probably a place of great uh, national natural beauty, which is, you know, protected by the environmental agency. And I thought there's no way they got planning permission for that house, which during a horror film is the last thing I want to be thinking about. I want to be thinking, I hope Kevin Bacon and his family get up here safe, not the EA is going to have an absolute shit fit about that. <laughs> you know, that's not what you want to be, want to be thinking to yourself when you're watching this film. But yeah, there's a scene where Kevin Bacon is going through Amanda Seyfried's phone and I could kind of hear the Mission Impossible music in my background as he checks the phone and then checks the iPad and the laptop or while she's, you know, having a bath and he's going, oh, do you want some shampoo? And she's going, no, why are you asking me that? And he's like, oh, no reason. It's very bizarre and awkward and stunted. The script is atrocious. The ending is predictable and somehow like jarring at the same time. It's a twist that completely comes out well, the twist doesn't come out of left field. It's something that you kind of can predict easily. But there are moments in the final showdown, if you will, that just completely object like, to the themes and ideas that were going on before in the sense that I think when they were making this, it was intended to be a kind of brooding psychological drama about this damaged character. And at the end, something from like the evil dead attacks him in like the basement and you're thinking I don't know if anyone I don't think the actors wanted to be in this film and I don't know if the director knew what film he was making because for three quarters of the film it's one thing and then for the finale it's com something completely different but yeah I just <laughs> it's the worst thing I've seen this year 
Guys, is this so bad it's funny? Or is this is this like fantasy? Because for me, Fantasy Island was absolutely atrocious, but made me, I was laughing at it the whole way through. Um, and from what you've told me, I kind of want to jump off this podcast and watch this film because it sounds like it might be so bad it's funny. Is that what we're talking about here? Or are we just, I mean, are we just talking about so bad it's just unwatchably poor, if that's a fair question? I think it's both. I think, I think you can watch it and there's like moments where, especially if you're English and you watch this and, and Rory alluded to it a bit uh, with his point, Kevin Bacon goes to this, st- this like store, which is a local convenience store because it's in like a very remote Welsh village, which makes no sense why they would go there because Amanda Seyfried's character goes there on a retreat for two weeks before she goes to film a project in London. Why wouldn't you just go to London? I, it's like, oh, I do not know the geography of, of, of the country whatsoever. So he's talking to this um, storekeeper and he's at, like, Rory says, he's, he's, Kevin Bain goes up to him and says, oh, can I get some butter? And like the guy ignores him, goes into the back room and brings it out. But it's like deadpan comedy at its, at its finest, Paul. At its finest, like two Ronnie's equivalent of hilarious. And then he goes, can I get some bread? And he goes back and does it again. It's like, oh, this is actually quite funny. And then at the end of it, he goes like, oh, how much are you? And he's like 26 pounds. And I'm and, and like, my, my, my girlfriend's American and she was like, what? And even I was like, yeah, <laughs> for bread, for butter, for what, eggs? And he goes like, for two bananas, like for 26 quid. And I was like, no. And like, it was like more funny, like watching it in that way. So there's two, there's, there's definitely comedic value here. There's also like unintentional comedic horror where I'm like, this is hilarious. And then there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a sex scene early on in the film in the back of a car where they have a discussion about um, orgasm, <laughs> orgasms. And Amanda Seyfried's character is faking one during the film shoot Kevin Bacon goes to see moments earlier. And in the car, in the worst green screen you've ever seen looking over, the worst sort of sky rise of LA you will ever see, they're talking and having sex in the back seat. And so it's meant to be this very intimate and, and personal moment. And in certain terms, they're having sex and she climaxes. And then they begin to then go through it again while talking about their daughter. Why are you talking about your six-year-old daughter when like, you're having sex? Like, it's so awkward. Like, it's so cringeworthy. Paul, <laughs> it's unbelievable. And then, then you get to the house. And then beyond, beyond relief that it's like, it's like quintessential comedy. Like Rory mentioned, like, there's like a, a, a scare tactic of a light going on and off. There's like, I'm really trying not to spoil it, so I apologise for erming and liking, but there is a scene towards the finale of the film where there's a twist, right? And me and Rory haven't alluded to this. It's not the climax at all. It's a twist where Kevin Bacon defies space and time. And <laughs> and then when you watch it, then it, it play, oh, I'm trying not to spoil it, but this, something happens to a character and then sort of the narrative structure changes and it sort of highlights different perspectives of stuff. And it's the most bane thing you've ever seen. Like someone writes in a notebook and it's meant to be scary. And he's like, he goes on this like fit of, did you write my notebook? It's like, honestly, almost like a Tommy Wiseau monologue. Did you, go, did you write my notebook? Like he accuses Amanda Seyfried's character. She's like, no. He's like, you, went, you wrote my notebook. I know you wrote my notebook because I didn't. And it, it's so, it, it, the intention is quite clear there to be like, oh, this is tense. Like I, I'm, I'm feeling so much animosity and tension. But the comedy value here shines through more than you'll ever believe. I'm a little on the... I mean, when Jack puts it like it does, it does sound like it's hilarious. But I, in the moment, I was sitting there watching it and just wishing for it to end. It's, 
boring. The worst thing a film can be is boring, and this film commits that sin in droves. The aesthetic is boring. The performances are dull. There's no chemistry there whatsoever. The script is boring. There's no backstory to any of these characters. So you don't care about what happens to them anyway. It, I was, when Jack was talking, I was thinking a little bit about what is my favorite film with Nolan Eye. And the comparisons here are actually quite interesting in the fact that these big city people go to the deep countryside and are just kind of accosted by people with strange kind of Welsh, Northern, whatever accents. And um, it just goes to show how a script can make all the difference. I, I don't really have much else to say about this, to be honest. It's completely exhausted me. It's just, I, I, it baffles me as to how these films get greenlit. I don't know which executive read the script for this and said, here's $4 million, go and make it. And wherever they are, they're probably sweating in their little boots right now because this, <laughs> this is a waste of money. Just to clarify, I feel like me and Rory perhaps haven't said this enough. This film is unequivocally unwatchable. This, this, if this is not in any, everybody's worst 10 of the year, I just, I, I, it, that would, I would be disgusted. <laughs> if I was Jason Blumhouse, and, and that's going slightly off topic and slightly serious, so I do apologise, I would be ashamed of having this on my, my production um, schedule. They must have known beforehand that this was meant to be a film that was either a sleeper hit or they just rolled the dice and it was a tax exploit. There's no way all this coming together. David Kep with, with Stir of Echoes, it was 21 years ago, Secret Window, Mordecai, and Kevin Bacon. It, 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 nothing here is a, is a recipe for success. So it sort of begs the question once again, as we mentioned with Wasp Network, what's the intention behind this? And it's not to, it's not to sort of be entertained. I mean, it's, it's, it's slightly a detriment to the film, but it's, it's only sort of positive is that it is so bad. It's actually quite fun, but it is unwatchable. Like, I don't, the, the, I know those things are either going to be mutually exclusive or not, but, and, and in the same breath, I don't want to sound oxymoronic, but it, it, it is devilishly fun. Like, it really is, but it's unwatchable in the same breath. It is, it is it's almost like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, honestly, it's almost like Tommy Wiseau directed a horror film and you got Kevin Bacon on and everyone was told before production started, this is a serious horror film. Please, we're making a really good, we're making something like Hereditary. Well, I'm, notoriously a a, I'm a glutton for punishment, so I'm probably going to watch it straight after this show. So, um, <sighs> and then I won't, I won't blame you. It's fine. I won't blame you. I won't hold you to account. But yeah, it sounds like, yeah, it sounds terrible. Absolutely terrible. But I'm going to, I'm going to dive in regardless. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, and I, <laughs> you can quote me on this. And I'm sorry for laughing, laughing, and like corpsing throughout this whole, whole co uh, podcast. But if you'd have told me two months ago, Bram's The Boy Two versus You Should Have Left, which one would you want to go back in and watch again? I would go watch Bram's Two. Wow. And, okay. And, and that film <laughs> is is a clusterfuck. But it has like like Rory said though, it has the exact same narrative. Um, conventions, you, you're placed in um, an American couple uh, and then you're placed like in, in Middle England, like in Wales or Yorkshire, and you've got like a, an awkward sort of third party who's obviously got something to do with the plot, but we're, we're not meant to know anything about it. The, 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 sh the store um, clerk in 
in the, the Welsh store clerk should have said, doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. Whereas in Brahms 2, there's sort of like a Yorkshire, um, <laughs> I can't remember his name, he's a guy out of the, the original office, um, but he does all these, uh, he does all the voiceover advertisements in the UK. So his voice is incredibly like um, renowned. And as soon as you hear that Northern gusp of, of um, it sort of just reminded me of what you just said, Rory, like the, the two very similar films, one just has a doll and it's dull. And the other one is, is like, you have a guy, another kid who's, I mean, to be fair, are both films, the, the child actors are, are both quite similar in the performances. And as, as, as Rory said, it's so evident here where the screenplays differ. Because, well, actually, I would, I, I would counter that because both of them have very similar screenplays, bar a few sort of narrative elements. But it's quite frightening how one of them is directed by David Kep, who's a renowned screenwriter in Hollywood, and the other director, uh, that I wouldn't probably be able to tell you off the top of my head, how distinctive those two films are. So I don't think talent is automatically the thing that's going to get you through this. It has to be an, an assignment of, of everything. So if you're going to put yourself through this, Paul, um, I don't want to be held accountable, but good luck. Because as you can see from mine and Rory's reaction, I'm, I'm just... Uh, I'm just so tired after watching it. There's nothing I can say that's like, oh yeah, it's it's relatively good. Like I've just got nothing on this one, pal. I've got nothing. Well, if it's going head to head with Brahms the Boy too, then I'm intrigued. I would now want to know which one's worse because I I completely agree with you. That movie was atrocious. So if it's on a par with that, I'm 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 I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> I just hope that nobody watches this like you, Paul. And it gets the numbers up, and and Universal Blumhouse think, whoa, we, someone's watched it. Someone's watched it, and it's it's three people from the UK, which happens to be us three. <laughs> let's let's move on because I I, I do feel like my can we please migraine. move on? Can we yeah. please move on? <laughs> I feel like I'm getting a migraine just talking about. It. I can feel Rory just like shaking in the background. Finally, let's transition to Ben Zeitlin's Wendy after an eight-year absence behind the director's chair. on a mysterious island, a girl fights to save her family, her freedom, and the joyous spirit of youth. Rory, you reviewed Wendy for Clapper. What do we think of this reimagining? Uh, this, to me, is a pretty fascinating film. And when I was thinking about it earlier, it's a film of opposites for me. It's not, it's not a film I enjoy, but it's a film that I found myself constantly kind of in awe of. And it's one of those films that I really wished I loved, even though I didn't. And it's bizarrely something that I really want to see again, not because I think I'll enjoy it more, but just because I want to digest its ideas and things more than I did the first time around. And just now that I know what happened, re-experience it through those eyes now that I know exactly what it is. Um, so Ben Zeitlin, he's got a very distinct visual style and approach to filmmaking. Uh, the way he juggles child actors here, it's basically, I, don't, I think there's maybe you could count you know on your hands the number of lines that adult characters have in this film it's completely lives and dies on these child performances which i think are, are pretty great to be honest if he's making a film as he said there the joy about the joyous spirit of youth fill it with child actors who are 
pretty fantastic in what they're doing. The Neverland here is a kind of run-down modern interpretation. It's still like seriously beautiful and it kind of every frame is filled with this natural beauty and kind of wonder, but it's got elements to it of kind of like a dark underbelly. I think the way I described it in my review, it reminded me very much of like a Garden of Eden type of situation where you've got the children in the center in this kind of glorious natural wonderland and then surrounded by just barren desert filled with kind of old pirates and weird, uh, bizarre goings on. Um, I won't say it's a failure though, because whilst I didn't enjoy it and whilst the vast consensus seems to be that people didn't enjoy it, I think Zetlin made exactly the film he wanted to here. I think this is uncompromisingly his vision, which I appreciate. And it's a very hard film to describe, I would say. It's, it's kind of confused and magical at the same time. It balances uh, the mundanity of modern kind of American adult life alongside this kind of fantastical imagination world. Um, in fact, even in the way that they get to Neverland, whereas before they climb out of the window and fly away, whereas here they jump on a train and kind of disappear and then kayak over to this mysterious island. And it's all very practical. But once you get there, that kind of imagination is recaptured and it's all fantastical again, you know, as it would be in the Disney original. It's just, yeah, a completely enthralling, fascinating film that I just didn't really enjoy that much. But that I, it sounds, you know, really cliche to say, but I appreciated it more than I enjoyed it which is a bit of a cop-out, but that's honestly how I feel about it. Jack, what did you think about this? I think you've taken the words straight out of my mouth, Rory. I feel the exact same way as you do. I mean, I think Zeitlin's film encapsulate that, encapsulates youth as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old beautifully. I think it, it really does, especially with the aesthetic and exploration of, of setting um, in Netherland, you know, kayaking and and you have dust and, and you have trauma and you have sort of life and death circumstance and you see it through a child's eyes. I think it highlights a lot of very interesting factors. Um, but I, I feel the same with you. This is not a disaster for me and I think, and it's not a failure by no means, but I felt, I felt this was slightly empty, especially for a film of this caliber with such thematic weight, which is, um, I must mention, like you said before, the child actors here are phenomenal. Um, Devin France as a, as a as the character of Wendy, um, the strongest aspect of this feature by uh, tenfold. Um, she showcases outstanding depth and emotion. Um, her caliber of skill here is just stunning. She's she enraptures the audience completely. She's engaging. Undoubtedly, the the thing to watch. I mean, each in each and every scene, she just she shines above everything else, which is not a positive. It's not, it's not a negative, but it's also, it's not necessarily the biggest positive you want because I think that the film also does a, an interesting thing about being colorblind. So it casts uh, Yeshua Mack as Peter, who's, a, who's a, a, a black child, which it doesn't change a thing, which is great because there's a lot of purists out there who like who, Peter Pan has to be white, even though he's not real, which is the biggest indicator of when you know something's not uh, quite right. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot here to quite like. I think what um, Benny Zeitlin does um, is, is really interesting. I think filmmaking-wise, to have an eight-year gap, which I think we should mention as well from Beast of the Southern Wild, which was unanimous um, universal critical acclaim 
for an eight year gap to make this is something on the, on the same lines of a Terence Malick. Um, and I think for the most part, after eight years, I don't think he's lost much. But if you want a sadistic look at Neverland, this is, this is it. It's not a child's film whatsoever. And I think that's the problem. I think it's going to have an issue with audience. I think it's interesting that like, me and Rory had the same perspective on the film, more or less. I, I completely agree with everything you said, Rory. It'd be interesting to get a child's perspective on this and then get someone who's in their 70s to have a perspective on this because we're not at that age. That We're not at that, I don't want to speak for you, Rory, but we're not at that young age to sort of see it through these eyes of mystery but we're not also at the age to see it through Poynter. So I think for us two, I think I, I sort of look at it more analytically rather than do th thematically, which is sad because I think this, this is so enriching, but filmmaking wise, I think the, the, the score, that I know you're a massive fan of this and I'll let you speak about it. So I don't want to take over what you said, but is majestic. The cinematography here is stunning. The land of Neverland looks so plain. I don't want to give it away, but how Benny Zeitlin sort of, introspect his own feelings and, 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 and aesthetic over it. It's delightful. It, it's like living, breathing quite literally. And it, it, it's so engulfing as an audience because you, like, you feel like it's, it's there. And I think, like I said about uh, France, she's incredible how she interacts with it. So is, um, is, is Mac. My, my problems on it is I, I find it's like slightly flat narratively. I think it goes on and on and on and on for an hour and 50 minutes, slightly too long for me. Um, cut out maybe 10 or 15 minutes of just existential dread and you've got it like i said about thematics it, it is a sadistic look at neverland which i quite like because it's it's against the grain it's taking a property i mean you, you look at what robert um rupert wyatt tried to do with sorry with um, the snow white series you know you've got the disney classic and then you inject it subvert it with sort of more of a realistic take even though they take more of a supernatural aspect of it, you still have that living, breathing live action. Here, it's it's um, it's skull and bones realism, and I think it's really well done. Um, what have I got here? That's that really for, for that's what it is. It's a reimagining of the classic Peter Pan tale that nobody asked for or needed. I feel at the end of the day, that's what I leave with Rory. I don't. I know because I know you're a massive fan. Well, not necessarily a massive fan, but I think you appreciate this more than I do. But um. For an eight-year gap from, from a director who was very promising to come out with Wendy sort of feels like a backtrack to me. It feels, for an eight-year delay, that would imply to me that it's a film that it's a passion project. And we've spoken about films earlier, like Paul's said about a producer is not the villain in every single production story. I mean, you've seen Netflix that you're given millions of dollars to to make um, a passion project like Will Ferrell has with Eurovision. Out of that and this, I think they're not too different in the fact that maybe it's just one for them and not for anyone else. It feels like it's quite in-house. But that's not a detriment to it. Like I said, I, I left here relatively impressed. And I'd like to see what Zeitlin does next, because I think that'll be a big telling of where he can go. And I'll definitely watch Devin France any chance I can get in any sort of feature. I mean, he's obviously a, a wonder with child actors. So there's definitely positives here. I'm just left slightly empty. I mean, it's got, it's got nice poignancy at the end, how it, how it works with sort of the mythology is what we know. And it has a really sort of brutally dark ending where we see a more adult-oriented Wenda understanding that her childhood has gone, her imagination has gone, and she's become 
the one thing that she escaped for originally. And I think it, it's sort of like a lasting moment where I found myself to be quite captivated. But other than that, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, more from Rory, but I think this is a film that sort of aims a little too namely a younger audience and an elderly audience. Yeah, I mean, once again, I agree with all your points there. I'd love to talk to someone who loves this. I know Sean Baker, we talked about earlier, Sean Baker, the guy who directed uh, The Florida Project, thought this was uh, Zeitlin's masterpiece. I wrote in my review that the, the, my main, not issue, but I think this is the most frustrating type of film, but it comes so close, so, so close to something that I would absolutely, completely adore, but it's just not. It gets, you know, halfway through the race and just falls flat on its face. And not that it gets halfway through the runtime and just collapses because it's inconsistent throughout. I find it very interesting, the view that he has, the director has of America's youth today compared to however they were, you know, in the 40s or whenever the original came out. Because in the original, I'm pretty sure they escaped with Peter Pan simply because of curiosity and a desire to kind of see you know, where this magical world goes and it's all childhood curiosity. Here, they escape because they're escaping the mundanity of adult life and how depressing the thought is of growing up rather than in the original way. You know, they still want to become adults, but they want to experience this magical world while they can. Whereas here, they literally, it's an escape. It's like escaping a, pr a prison, a prison of maturity and growing old. Um, which I found very interesting and moving on from what you said, a very kind of sadistic way of viewing this story. Um, carrying on from there, the music, as you said, I mean, I don't have enough good things to say about this because it was composed with Zetlin and another composer, I can't, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, but it's fantastic. It's kind of a joyous, triumphant, uh, melancholic, really, at times excruciatingly sad, but at times extremely joyous and happy. And the way that it balances that all together, it just kind of breaks my heart that this won't get kind of Oscar recognition because of how small the film is, because this is the best score I've heard in years. I would rank this among my favorite scores of all time, which is bizarre because the film that's attached to isn't quite there. Uh, I think it's quite Malick-esque in its look and in its kind of uh, the way that the storytelling unfolds here. It's not, you know, whispering voiceover among, you know, characters walking around and kicking rocks off, you know, piers and whatever weird shit that Malik likes to do in his new stuff. Um, but it's meditative, uh, calming, existentialist kind of interrogation of the human condition. But I think the main issue here is that it's, interrogating children and people who don't fully understand the world themselves yet and they don't have enough depth to really justify that interrogation i think that's where the difference really is here and yeah as i keep saying it's just the more i think about it, the more frustrated i am because there's so so much that i just absolutely love here but as a whole it's just not there um the ending you discussed earlier the ending is probably my favorite part of the film. It's completely heartbreaking. I, I wrote in my review on, I think I wrote in my review on Clapper that it, it matches, in my opinion, and I might get slightly roasted for this, but it matches, in my opinion, the opening 10 minutes of Up. And I think those are quite good comparisons 
because when someone asks someone what's your favorite Pixar film someone might say up and you say what's your favorite Pixar film after the first 10 minutes and the answer would be completely different and the same is here this has a fantastic 10 final 10 minutes it's so melancholic and upsetting but that's only because what you've experienced already is so uplifting and joyful and it's one of those films where you want the protagonist to achieve their dreams, but they never really quite manage it. And that's due to, in this case, you know, magical restrictions and uh, pressure to return to conformity, which I think is the main theme here is that you can't escape maturity and conformity in this modern world. And that kind of the age of childhood wonder and imagination is slowly collapsing. Um, but yeah, the ending is just fantastic. I would almost say if you're, skeptical about watching this film watch it because i think it's a hugely fascinating film but the ending will have you you know welling up a bit because it's just that fascinating i mean i don't want to compare it to eurovision because that's a completely different kind of ending and whilst you know the ending of eurovision i did find you know saddening this one was just on another level i mean it's heartbreaking but um something i wanted to talk about is two my question is twofold this, I want, I would, if you gave me the choice between Disney remaking Peter Pan and Ben Zetlin giving me this version, I would take this any day of the week. I think the way that he has changed and morphed and changed the perspective and the type of filmmaking to the source material is just like very admirable and very ambitious. And so my question, my first question is, if we continue getting Disney remakes of properties, would you prefer the way that Disney have been doing it so far, like John Favreau's Jungle Book, or would you prefer a more artistic hit or miss approach like they've done here? It's a difficult question to ask, because obviously, you know, different directors will do different things with different stories, but would you prefer this approach to the kind of corporate studio approach? And my second question is simply, would you watch this again? Because I think I would. I, I think I almost definitely will watch it again, if not once, then multiple times, just to see if it has that impact that I want it to. Because what I'm struggling to convey here is I so, so desperately want this film to make me love it. And I think if I watch it a few more times, then maybe I might break through and it will with my, <laughs> my voice keeps cracking, with my uh, expectations altered. Now that I know what kind of beast this is, I think maybe if I go back in with those expectations set, I'll learn to love it more and I'll sit on it and it'll be one of those kind of sleeper hits for me. And it's just bizarre. I've never really had a film experience. I've, I haven't stopped thinking about it since I saw it about two weeks ago. And it's just the kind of captivating experience that breaks my heart in every sense of the word, emotionally, and because it's not something that I completely love, but it's something I really, really want to. But yeah, my questions are, do you want more Disney remakes like this or, and will you watch it again? I've said this for quite some time, sort of in my small social groups, where I think Disney have, have come to the point where they can only take their properties to a certain degree, where they'll hold their audience's hands, and you know, no, no, no doubt that they've developed um, an era of child films oriented to children, um, and elevated that to a point where no one else can touch it. I mean, we're seeing Universal the minion stuff no 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 nowhere you're seeing a missing link and and stuff like that that are getting close to it but they'll never sort of touch upon those era defining um and genre defining films that being said 
and we've mentioned this before about about this film has a sort of layer of sadistic intent and if you haven't seen the film i think that can be quite off-putting but i just need to clarify that that's what works in this film for me most importantly under everything else life is not as simple as a disney pixar film will make out and i think what zeitlin has made here reflects the innocence of being a child in a world that's dangerous and danger comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and it's not just that you can be next to a railway track and you can get hit by a train it's that you can make decisions and not know the outcomes at a tender age and it's all about like rory said about conformity to 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 sort of the the engine of 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 how this world works is that I mean, in the film, I, I'm trying not to give much away, but in the film, sort of Wendy's life is then portrayed in sort of a montage, and through voiceover, there's sort of like this, and and before the even the heartbreaking thing when me and Rory talking about that, she talks about the memories that we watch in the film that are so genuinely beautiful to watch that become just bedtime stories. They just become fragments, and it's it's realistically talking about those things. And that's why I want, I would love to hear a, a child's perspective on this film. There's only one scene in this where it's like, maybe that's too much of a push. And it's a certain infamous character who's involved in this story. You, if you can guess it has an accident and, you know, read between the lines. But what Zeitlin does here with a property that we've all seen, he doesn't reinvent the wheel, but he in, inter, interjects a human element to it. And as you said, Rora, you asked, sorry, I would rather see that human element over something like Onward every day of the week because you can make Onward in, in, in this sort of aesthetic, but you can make that so more, more profound with re like weighted realism. If you, have a, if you have a parent who's deceased, it's, it, is it easy for a five or six-year-old to sort of comprehend that through Onward? Yes. And I don't, obviously, I don't want to speak for myself. I don't have children, but I, I can only imagine through, and this is obviously speaking maybe out of turn here, but it's sometimes easy to have that conversation delicately, delicately, don't get me wrong. But if a child wants to understand what it's like for a grandparent or for, for someone who's had that time and that time is now inescapable, I think Wendy's a perfect solution for that. It's, so, it's not heavy-handed. It's beautifully orchestrated to have those discussions with weighted uh, tendency, but also not afraid to really question that, yes, childhood is, 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 is delicate, it's, it's, it's beautiful, but there's, there's ramifications of even when you were young that, that need to sort of have a, have a, have a dialogue. Um, your second question about watching it again, I would, but only on one preference, and that would be watching it in a cinema and hopefully watching it on a 30, on a 16 millimeter projection, because Zeitlin and um, the uh, cinematographer, which the man I'm just about to get now, because I don't want to butcher it, because I'm, I'm pronounced to do that sort of stuff, um, by Sterler Branth Grovelin. Um, it's shot in 16 millimeter, and to say that it looks outstanding is an understatement, and that's why the comparisons with Malik. If anyone's seen A Hidden Life or um, um, The Tree of Life, Ze Zeitlin makes those films for children. 
and the, the, that cannot be understood of how amazing that is. And I think Rory's on a trajectory. Sorry, excuse me. Rory's on a trajectory further than I am. I think Rory's at that point now where he's beginning to like love the film, even in its small instances where it disappoints him. I'm not there yet, but I can tell by having this discussion with him, I'm going to be on that. Ironically, that train. I can just see it in a in a six months time. I'll want to watch this again because I think I can watch this again and see it from your perspective where that sort of excess shit doesn't bother me and I can just feel the emotional weight of it. But I can't I can't sort of <laughs> I can't sort of describe the the Terence Malick influence here. Like it is a hidden life or a tree of life for children. And I think that's I think that is amazing because those films, while emotionally convoluted and thematically sort of like quite dense and and you've got like I don't know Christopher Plummer climbing up a tree for three hours getting coconuts and it's cut out it's all excess shit for Malik's sort of self-indulgence and while that works in his mind it doesn't benefit the audience whereas any everything in Zeitlin's film Wendy it benefits watching even it's like small moments where it's like Right, we can sort of get on with this now. It's it's we're at an hour and hour and a half, hour and a half. Let's just get this next twenty minutes done. On next viewing, I'll understand the importance of the delicacy of small instances between Wendy and Peter, or Wendy and James, and understand that that dynamic evolves and it's sort of like really beautifully done. Especially the ending, like with, with the character of Peter, how he interacts with the sort of the villain of, of the piece. Let let's say. Like, I just don't think this could have been done any better by Zeitlin. And that's even me saying I'm not particularly on board of loving the film. But to answer your question um, small, uh, with a small answer, or I would see this again without a shadow of a doubt, but it had to be on 16 millimeter. I want to be in that world. And I think watching this on demand, I didn't get that. And I want to be, that, it's just such a luscious cinematography and the aesthetic of this island and the blues and the sands and the greens and the browns. Like it, it just it looks amazing. The film grain is just beautiful. So to see it again in the cinema, I would I'd be there in a heartbeat. But it'd be interesting to get Paul's answer on this, just from a perspective of someone who's not necessarily seen this film, but is is into sort of the cinema cinema world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I'm very excited to see this. To be honest, it was, it's certainly despite the kind of middling reviews it's been picking up, it was on my probably most most anticipated of the year. I just haven't got to it yet. So I'm very 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 much looking forward to it. Um, yeah, in terms of the, yeah, look, I was looking at some um, some of the stuff about how it was shot and the fact it was shot on 16 millimeters does fascinate me. Um, and apparently there was no sort of electrics for lighting in some of the locations. So I've got I've got this image in my head of this film just looking absolutely incredible. Like, and I'm, I'm excited to see it. And I think it sounds to me like one of those films that even if it does have some shortcomings, it's going to be an interesting enough, interesting enough film uh, to engage me and it's, it seems like it's got a lot of good going on um, for sure so I'm excited to see it yeah it's a shame I don't whether or not we get to see it in a cinema especially in this country I'd say is unlikely um, unfortunately um, but no I'm, I'm certainly excited to see it especially now you guys have talked about it because it's almost like you say you'd rather someone you'd rather someone roll the dice and take a punt at doing something different and it miss um, than just making something sort of bland and generic and going back to your question worry about the, the kind of Disney remakes um, and that kind of thing I didn't. Jungle Book is probably the one I liked the most, I think, because it for me it did something a little bit different to those stories. But the way Disney are remaking their their animated classics at the moment, it's just pointless. It's I mean, okay, everything's there to make money. Ultimately, Wendy is probably there to make money at some point. It's very easy to say that every film is a product, and ultimately, 
will make money, but it's you can't level it at Disney and say they're not just make, rolling out these these films. They do no different. I mean, The Lion King is a prime example of it. It took the same film again, but managed to take all of the soul and life out of it. Um, so, yeah, in answer to your question, Rory, I'd much rather see adaptations like this that do something a bit different um, and, and take and take risks with the source material because otherwise you don't you don't move on. Uh, there's no point just remaking something shot for shot. It's a waste, a waste of everyone's time. So, I for one am very excited about seeing it. So, just to just to add on a little bit then to to Paul and Rory, I think there's certain properties obviously that you can't really use this magical realism to. I mean. Something like the Jungle Book, you could, because it's got like a, a main character who's um, uh, Mowgli, who's, who's obviously a, a human being. I think the Lion King, you would definitely suffer sort of having sort of an emotional weight to it purely because if we're talking about how Zeitlin crafts these films, it's complete realism. So I could, besides the Lion King thing, but it's just interesting that you would start with Wendy. I'm just finding that fascinating because if you do look at the, the sort of properties here, um, you know, there's quite a few things that you get every every year or so where there's like a dark reimagining. You know, we we, we spoke about um, or we haven't spoke about it, but we, we reviewed for the site is Gretel Hansel, the uh, sort of magical realism horror approach of that. I mean, I, I love sub subvert expectations, not to sort of uh, toot my own horn, um, excuse me, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I'm a massive fan of M Night Shyamalan's Glass. Not only because I'm a, I adore Unbreakable and I'm a huge, huge fan of Split, but I appreciate the subvert expectations of genre in that. I don't want to go there and watch an, an MCU battle where Bruce Willis fights James McAvoy on top of a building. I like the intimacy of it. I like that I'm not getting what I want. And we spoke about this before about tokenism is a huge thing now. And I think def de defying audience expectation is something that can be easily done now because it's such a saturated market with cinema. You could easily like anti-heroes are now going to come into fashion if they're not already here because people are going to get just not bored is not the, the correct term but i think people are slightly underwhelmed with this heroistic factor of and it might be out of tune here saying this as well but it's sort of like americanization of, of the hero is such a level it's not like a level playing field where in life it's not that simple and i think to go back to wendy zeitlin does that perfectly there are, there are antagonists and there are protagonists, but the, the line blurs a lot more than it's just simple, you're over here, you're over there. And I think that's one aspect why I, I sort of adore, because, and I, I don't want to sort of ruin, the, it's, if, you know, if you know the material, the, the narrative doesn't, become, it doesn't come at a surprise, but it's more beautifully done if you go in there blind. And there are sort of like arcs where it's like, oh, that's quite interesting. And it, it sort of goes into more mythology. But the, 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 I don't want to repeat myself again, but the, um, sort of the interactions between those characters are so genuine and so like beautifully done. Like it's like humanistic. And I think Disney will never approach that again because it's so simple to have a, an ogre or a troll that's got one eye who doesn't show, who doesn't reciprocate or show any emotion and has a tear roll down and it's like, oh my God, the audience is shocked. Like the, the, the scene that like sums this up is, is Shrek with Puss in Boots. Like that, I, nobody, nobody emotionally connects with Shrek too. But there is that scene where Antonio Banderas' little animation Puss in Boots does that thing of its eyes, like every cat does, which is adorable. And that gets you. But that's the, that's the 
the key that everyone misses if that's meant to get you and it's purposely woven in there to do a simple job of like oh wow and then you're back into the film it's a detriment to the whole film because it undermines everything that's come before it emotionally and i think animation really does struggle with that but my, my not to not to give another question out but i would I don't want not to ask two questions because obviously I don't want to invalidate uh, what Rory uh, is, is going to come in and say next. But uh, after after Rory just said his little piece, I'd be fascinated to know if anything else can be sort of constructed like Zeitlin's Wender or what Zeitlin should do next. Because this is actually a pivotal um, moment of his career because if we're talking about his Malik trajectory, I mean, this is if this is his hidden life or the tree of life, be very interesting to see what you get next because this is this is a director that needs to stay away from corporate entities at all moment possible. I don't want to see him make the Green Lantern or the Green Hornet or do a Kevin Smith route where it's like, let's make Cop Out. Like, no, 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 no. Let's 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 make not. I don't want to. I don't want Wendy too. And I think that's what Rory. Me and I think that's what Rory's struggling with. I don't want to uh, sort of interject into what Rory wants to say, but I think I I would rather not watch this. Ag- how do I say this? I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted here because I, I want to say I want to watch this again, but I want to watch something Zeitlin does again. I'd love, I'd love Wendy too, but we're never going to get Wendy too. So we've got what we've got. I think that's what I struggle with. I think that what might, might be what Rory struggled with as well because it's there are things that I want to adore where I'm just not there with it. So I want to watch it again, but I, I just feel like those things are, I might get me back again. But I just, Rory, if you want to come in here and then, then um, if you want to answer the question of what Zeitlin does next. Because I'm, I'm interested to see what you you, you want to point out here. I just want to get more familiar with this film. I think, I think I want this film to kind of slowly work its way uh, into my heart a little bit more because it's almost there, but it's just falling short a little bit. But I think one of the main reasons it's falling short could just be my initial expectations, which you know is the is the pitfall of many a many a film. Uh, and I think I'm not, you know, disagreeing with anyone here when I say that this is a film that Disney never would and never could make. They never would make it because it's not financially viable and they never could make it because this is Zetlin's complete unadulterated vision. And I think that's a part of why I love it so much. And there could also be, never be a Wendy too, because this, if you see the ending, this is a complete story. And if there was a Wendy 2, it would just be the same film over again. Uh, but I don't want to give away too much by saying that. Um, what's next for Zetlin is a, is a difficult question to answer. I hope it doesn't take eight years. I haven't seen Beast of the Southern Wild, so I've got that to check out now, which I'm very much looking forward to. And I've heard it's it's got a lot more critical acclaim than this one has. But if this is anything like that, then I'm definitely keen to look into it. I honestly don't know what what he's got next in the pipeline. It's a difficult one to pin down because he's gone from what at least felt like a very kind of homegrown, close to the heart, like I don't, I haven't seen it, but this is some like deep south fantasy. Uh, it seems very similar thematically to Wendy, and you know this is just using those ideals but tackling it in a familiar story that we all know. Um, but I wouldn't want him to see. I wouldn't want him to see him do, you know, like a Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer or anything like that. I think he's got to branch out again 
it's it's very interesting. I'm I'm now thinking back to Nicholas Ash Bateman when we were talking about him in the first episode and how he made The Wanting Mayor and he wanted all his future films to exist in that universe of The Wanting Mayor. And I feel like Wendy and Beast of the Southern World, at least what I know of it, could very much be two parts of the same puzzle. And I feel like I just want him to take new stories, probably about youth and revolt or youth escaping from adulthood, and just expand that, expand this kind of mythical childhood Deep South universe. You know, I feel like he could make maybe, you know, the next kind of Daughters of the Dust, but with a more like fantastical spin on it. That's the, that's the kind of vibe I get from him. And that excites me hugely. I just don't want it to take eight years because, you know, for as much as I love Terence Malick, he has taken a long ass time to make all his films. Um, but yeah, I, I really don't know what's next for him. I just hope that he continues to do what he's doing and he just remains like this pure, uncorrupted bastion of like independent thought and that he refines his craft so that the next film he makes, I do properly fall for the first time. But if it's anywhere near as effective as this is, then there's, you know, a lot of promise for him. But the one thing that I want to add on, I know we've talked a lot about how he kind of creates this sadistic version of Neverland, but the thing that I really liked is how he treated the character of Peter Pan. Not only, you know, does he, you know, subvert all those stupid, racist, racist, racist stereotypes, but he makes Peter Pan a severely flawed character. Peter Pan here is a seven-year-old child and he makes the kind of stupid decisions that a seven-year-old child would make. And I thought that was a pretty fascinating way to, of approaching it. And it's a kind of thing where you're sitting there and you see him make a stupid move and you think, but of course he would because he's seven and there are no, there's no one there to guide him. And that's, I think, also why the ending is so magical in a sense, because him and Wendy, not to spoil anything, take very different paths. And the path that both of them take is heartbreaking in equal sense. One who has, you know, come to terms with what must happen and the other one who hasn't. And I think that's a very poignant thing to say about not only the characters in this film, but the characters in the story as a whole. It's made me completely reevaluate how I think about the Peter Pan mythology entirely and it's added a hugely tragic undertone to how the character ends up in the original which you know originally seems all wonderful and great but when you watch this I think you'd have a very different opinion on the conclusion of that film but yeah I don't want to go on too much but I would definitely recommend this to anyone and that's my piece so we can count out Wendy 2 back in action coming out next year then I suppose please no do a um... <laughs> I'd rather see, uh, well, I've forgotten what the name is, that Kevin Bacon film that we were just talking about too, before I see Wendy too. <laughs> I, I, you know, I believe it or not, I don't believe when you say that. Um, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm slightly just talking about, uh, just to end on um, Benny Zeitlin's uh, progression and, and slight career. My only sort of problem is I just hope he doesn't go and make Jojo Rabbit. I just think it's a one thing I... I regardless of Taika Waititi's uh, film, it just feels like it's going to be like a small evolution to that point where it's going to make sort of like a, not a, not a counterculture remark about something and, and subvert expectations there. But I, I just hope that's not the trajectory because it's not the right way to go for Zeitlin. I think, we, we like you said, Bateman's a very interesting um, comparison because these are two um, creators and, and directors who've got quite a clear plan of where they want to go and what they want to create. I just hope that they both don't get not muddled, but swamped in the sort of the 
system of having to make something to appease studio executives rather than themselves. Because I will be, having not seen Beasts of the Southern Wild, um, and which I believe Paul has, and, and he, he, he rates it quite strongly. And obviously, I will go back after what Rory just said to uh, uh, highlight that again. I think we'll both go back and watch that. And f for a long time, I think that'll, that'll keep me at bay, but I, I will be sort of itching to, to get out for a, for a third out exactly sooner rather than later. But those eight years, it does beg the question of why it took so long to make this, because for $6 million, and from, from a critical acclaim standpoint of, of being an Oscar-nominated feature, it is a strange predicament to be in that it took this long to sort of craft, which I don't know if that's that he wanted to do different things or having that sort of immense power at such a young age with his directorial debut, maybe that put him off. But eight years, I, I just can't see it being that long of a wait, to be honest, Rory. Hopefully not anyway. To round out Clappercast, we like to end on some of our latest film or TV recommendations. Paul, let's start with you this week. Uh, well, I've been watching. Uh, it's taken me a little while to get to it because I didn't really see what purpose it served. But I finally started watching the Snowpiercer TV series on Netflix, um, which is actually quite good thus far it does it takes a slightly different track to the film which is quite nice um the performances are decent in it and the production value is pretty good i've got a few problems with it here and there but we're interested to see if they're ironed out but yeah if i would say if you like the original film don't be too worried that this kind of uh, tramples on the memory of it because it doesn't it does something different and it uh it exists it exists in its own universe and i hopefully will prove to be a worthwhile companion i don't think it'll be as good as the film but it's decent so far Rora? Uh, my recommendation for this week is Whit Stillman's uh, The Last Days of Disco, which I came across because I was looking for a kind of Baumbach-esque film to watch. And Whit Stillman seems like a very, a very similar but kind of unique in a, it from Baumbach uh, director with very sharp kind of pessimistic kind of narcissistic characters. Um, and it's kind of like a melancholic time capsule to the 80s and the kind of people and the uh, mentality of youth in that era. There are some great performances. Kate Beckinsale, I think this is Kate. Be I think this is Kate Beckinsale's film. This is her, the one that she'll be remembered for if if there is one, uh, because she's fantastic in it, as is everyone else. Uh, there's an amazing 80s kind of disco soundtrack if that's your kind of thing, which it very much is mine a bit. Uh, and yeah, I think it's just a great time capsule, very sharply written kind of ancestor to the mumblecore genre. Uh, so I definitely recommend The Last Days of Disco. I have watched one thing that sort of shocked me of how good it is, not that it was ever going to be sort of bad or anything, but to the extent of how impressed I was, is um, Magnus von Horn's Cannes 2020 official selection film Sweat, which stars, I believe her name is... Uh, Magdalena Kolsonek, which uh, that's butchered. I do apologize. But she stars like a, of a, a, I believe she's Russian and she's a fitness instructor, which is a fitness freak. And the film sort of dives into that ideology of having one set goal, exercise, 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 health freak, health freak. And then slowly and beautifully, may I add, delves into sort of more of a societal, um, and gender idea of, of, of how her life has been constructed. So how society views her simply as, because I must mention she's massive on social media in the film, huge on Instagram. That's how she becomes renowned and, and, and the story. 
millions of fans all over the world, posts, clips on Instagram, um, and she does it psychologically so she can get sort of like a, a, a she, she, I think she does it emotionally so she feels like she's wanted. Uh, she makes mentions throughout the film quite a, um, quite a few times that she struggles with intimacy and she has a very strange relationship with her mother. Um, and the film sort of d d dives into that about how she has an issue with men, how they treat her um, as an object, a sexual object, something to sort of see on Instagram and how she's not a person. And then it sort of in, it looks at sort of the societal issues of that, of how people come to her as as not a being, but as a, as a product and how they can sell her around. And it goes into sort of quite dark territory later on in the film, but Coastal uh, Nick is, is fascinating and, and she's, she's absolutely superb. She has a scene very much in, in the same frame of Wendy where the, the emotion is brewing up, it's brewing up and you sort of don't know where it's going. And there's some violence here and there and there's some sort of really dark moments. And there's sort of this unleashed, emotional conviction that she's she has this monologue live on television i don't want to ruin anything but it's superb it's a film that really does cut very deep in this sort of a uh, digital age um a can selection no doubt it should be on there i would have seen how it would have fared at the uh, official um a selection actually in in canon nice and to see if it would have got any more acclaim but it's definitely one to watch if anyone can do the other film that i haven't seen yet but is on my radar because of uh, um a retro retrospective we're doing next month is uh, Spike Lee's Miracle at St. Anna, which uh, sort of shakes me to the core because I've tried to watch it three times and I've never sort of been able to get past its 190 minute running time. But after the success of Defy Bloods, very much uh, uh, willing to get back in, in there, to be honest. Well, that is it for this week's episode of Clappercast. Where can we find everyone on social media? Paul? Uh, so you can find me at HK Cavalier 1982 and the podcast Strangers in a Cinema at Strangers Cinema on Twitter. Thanks for having me. And Rory? Uh, you can find me at Rosa227 on Letterboxd. And you can find me at Jack Luke Sharp, both on Twitter and Letterboxd, spouting all sorts about films and probably complaining about Tarantino and guessing Tenet's possible release date every other, every other hour. You can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at www.clapperltd.co.uk and find out social links on Clapper at Facebook and at Clapper LTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. Thank you all for listening and we'll be back next week to discuss all things cinema.